Hello and welcome to this week's Bosscast. I'm Andrew Teacher from Blackstock Consulting. I'm delighted to be joined by Olivier Elamine, who is the Chief Executive at German REIT Austria. Olivier, thank you very much for coming all the way to London to see us here this week. It's an absolute pleasure to meet you. Thanks, uh, yeah, thanks for making the time. Now, interestingly, we were just thinking about, as we were setting the microphones up, just thinking about the microphone setup and, and how we get the lovely BBC Radio 4 sound that, that Propcast is known for. But you were actually a DJ in your uh, in some of your more junior years on on uh, was it was it pirate radio in France or actually it was a college radio in France and it does bring like very good memories to be speaking so close to the mic so it was uh, le- legal or pirate I was was very legal was very legal <laughs> Not like Radio, Radio Caroline. So, and what kind of music did you play? Uh, well, I used to play like uh, hit songs, like um, like a chart of the best songs during the week. It was like once a week, Saturday from eight to ten. Amazing! Uh, yeah, yeah, was was pretty much fun and uh, <laughs> and a nice experience to have as a young kid. Yeah. Oh, excellent! Well, yeah, sadly everyone's now just with Spotify and Deezer and and everything. Yeah, the, the, I think the fun's gone out of that. But what an amazing, yeah, amazing yeah. to hear. And in, in terms of your career, Olivier, your French. Not German. Whereabouts did you grow up? What happened in your formative years to bring you into the world of listed German real estate? So I am um, actually French. I grew up in Lebanon, which is a country in the Middle East, as you probably know. Mm. And then I um, I studied in France and started working at Ernst Young in the environmental field at the time in 1998. But uh, there was nothing much to do, and uh, I couldn't have enough billable hours, so I moved into real estate. So what? Yeah, what? I mean, what did as Working at EY, doing ESG, lots of lots of acronyms. What, what, what it was, of course, Ernst and Young at the time, not EY. But what did that look like in the nineties? What did an ESG job entail? So we were working a lot with public entities on something called Agenda Twenty One at the time, which was, I mean, this was really the start of sustainability as a concept, and a lot of municipality were thinking about building up policies that will help them balance economic, social, and environmental benefit. Yeah. And they were putting together a framework, which was called Agenda 21, which was sponsored by the United Nations. And the team I was working for at Ernst Young was uh, actually advising municipalities and local government mm. into implementing those. So we were organizing like town hall meetings where you had basically all the stakeholder of a certain uh, city that would join and discuss about what are the challenges of the local government in terms of sustainability. And we're trying then to come up with a plan that would be implemented within the next 10 years for the municipality to work with. Mm. So that was uh, what it was all about. But there was very little municipality doing that. And then we had to do something else just to earn a living. In so as boss of Austria, you're the biggest German office REIT. So there's, well, it's not actually any other office REITs is there in Germany. But in in terms of asset base, your NAV is about 4.6 million euros. So it brings you roughly to the same size as the office portfolios of some of the UK REITs, just for, for context. And, and you're quite widely spread, aren't you? Geographically, you're spread right across the board in Germany. Tell us about the market there at the minute. How are you seeing the dynamic shift post-COVID? So we are actually very much uh, spread in five different cities in Germany. I think the peculiarity of Germany in Europe is that it's a federal state. So unlike like France or the UK, we don't have a, a Paris or a London. And our portfolio is is actually in, in five of the major metropolitan area, uh, which are Hamburg, Frankfurt, Berlin, Stuttgart, and, and Dusseldorf. You live in Hamburg, don't you? I do. This is where the company is headquartered. The market dynamics are, are pretty much similar across the different markets. So you wouldn't make a, a major difference 
difference. And uh, what is happening right now is a lot of companies, at least German companies, are rethinking the way they want to organize themselves post-COVID. And this thought process is still ongoing. There is no formal decision, I think, made uh, in most of those companies. The German corporate system entail a dialogue between uh, management and the workforce. And that's kind of embedded in the German corporate culture. And this dialogue is happening as we speak. And the conversation is about, you know, how many days per week you're going to be working from home? Yeah, yeah. Is it going to be mandatory? Is it going to be optional? And before you have the answer to all those questions, it's very hard to set up a real estate strategy. And so most of the tenant today we are speaking to are still in that process. And we do expect that it's going to take probably between now and the end of the year before people try or at least have a sort of a plan mm. and where is it at the minute because in london we we have a funny acronym for people that only work between tuesday wednesday and thursday and listeners can spell that out for themselves but what's the current vibe in hamburg is it are people just doing that are they coming in on tuesday are they they living in the countryside and, and coming into the cities for a few days. So if, if I take the example of our own employees, we offer them since we've back uh, in the office, which was on October 1st, that they have 80 days per year where they can work from home. And I think it's it's approximately two days a week, which they can basically choose where to, to work from home whenever they want. Mm. As a company, it doesn't really matter whether they're working from like Ibiza or their own apartments, as long as, as they're working in a sense. And I think this is really the philosophy, which, which I believe is, is going to be true in most of the German companies. Two days a week over time is going to be the norm. Where people work and when I think it's a question of organizing companies, but but essentially, uh, once you accept the idea that you can be very efficient in working from home, then there is no downside into allowing people to do that. Yeah. And do you think then, if what you're saying is 60% of the week is, or 40% of the week is going to be spent out of the office, how can office values continue at the level there are if, if there's immediately going to be a reduction in demand because in the, the minute certainly in the uk market we're being told that everything's fine and we're seeing the share prices come back of, of the listed businesses we're seeing all of the brokers saying rents are going to go up but clearly whilst rents may go up for prime real estate and prime offices we're going to have this bifurcation between the good and the bad and surely the bad is going to drag the overall down so I think that's, that's a good point. There is a difference between people are working from home and how much office space they need, in a sense. And the difference is more in whether or not you're going to implement desk sharing policies. If there is one thing the pandemic have told us is you don't come to the office because you want to have a desk and a chair, because you have that at home and it works pretty well. So there is something else that the office is bringing to the equation. And that's something else, I mean... I don't think anybody can define it properly, uh, you know, call it uh, collaboration, teamwork, etc., is where the value of offices is. So I do believe there are going to be bifurcation. There are going to be bifurcation between the buildings and the offices that are able to deliver this added value for which company are going to be prepared to pay and buildings which are not going to be able to do that. Another way to think about it is the office used to deliver that value in five days a week. Now it needs to deliver the same value in three days a week. Mm. So your building needs to be kind of 20 or 30% more efficient on that specific item. And again, the difficult part is we don't know what that item is. And we also don't know what exactly makes 
the office actually fulfill that role. So this is something I believe there's going to be a lot of trial and error to try to figure that out. But I'm not a believer in the idea that, you know, you, you can and will do everything from home. There is things that are more effectively done from home. And I think we need to acknowledge that. Yeah, yeah. And there are things which are more effectively done in the office. And we also, I think, corporate are acknowledging that as well. And when it comes to collaboration culture, England has been very, yeah, we've been very excited about co-working over the last few years. Obviously, so has the US. And we've all seen what's happened with WeWork. How does the German market respond to flexibility? And what does that look like in terms of the leasing market? So flexibility is a relative notion. I mean, the flexible concept is, is relative. And um, in, in Germany... Yeah, I guess in England, we mean flexible compared to 20-year leases where you have absolutely you have to pay more rent every year uh, absolutely so i mean if, if you're if your starting point is a 20-year lease then flexible might be a five-year lease um if <laughs> yeah, like exactly. in germany your, your your starting point is five-year lease with a break option in year three you know then flexible and what we call flexible space in, in our portfolio is desks that we rent by the day and so there is this notion is is kind of used everywhere but it i mean people put different meaning behind it our experience is that there is a need for flexibility in a sense that tenant doesn't necessarily want to commit for 20 years, but they still want to commit from some time because at the end of the day, I mean, we're, we're still like human beings like to be in their cave. You want to know where your cave is and mm -hmm. you want to go to the same place all the time. So I, I think this animal spirit is still there. You don't want to be changing office every every other day. We actually see that in our co-working business, the same people go to the same spaces, although we have spaces like in the same cities, but they still go literally to the same space. And within that space, they tend to sit at the same desk. So I think the the notion of flexibility is, is something we need to take um, on, on a very relative basis. The co-working space itself, I think we can debate that for hours. Um, well, we've got, I mean, we had the boss of the office group, Charlie Green, on a couple of weeks ago, and, and they've been expanding into Germany, uh, into Berlin. So are you worried about that? Are you worried about people like the office group coming out to Germany? Um, I'm not. I mean, we've not been making money in our co-working business for, for five and a half years now, so we barely break even. So I wish them luck. And in terms of how you've had to respond to COVID and how you're doing things differently to encourage that collaboration and add that value, what have you had to do to your portfolio to update it, to modernize, to reflect how people want things now? I don't think this is necessarily linked to COVID. The question of modernizing your portfolio and upgrading it to the needs of the tenant is a question we constantly have. I think one of the fundamental differences between the way we operate in Germany and the way office real estate probably operate in the UK is we deliver a building which is fully fitted out to our tenants. And we have been doing that forever. Uh, so basically, when a tenant rents a building in Austria's portfolio, uh, when the lease starts, he comes put his furniture, plug his computer and start working. This is how it works. So understanding how the building needs to be set up interiorly, so how the space planning needs to work, et cetera, is part mm -hmm. of our process. We have a team which is dedicated in doing essentially only that. So thinking about how people are working in the office, what they're doing in the office has been part of our processes forever. And so COVID have not changed that process. What it has changed is the way people are thinking about their office. So we need to adapt our planning to that. But the process about gathering that information and then transforming it into something which is going to meet yeah. the tenant demand is, is a process we already have. It's different for landlords who have been doing core and shell 
or cat a yeah. uh, delivery and so I can, what, what do you think when you look at the uk market the uk office market what do you think compared to germany so i i think i believe the market is going to move and and this is what you're saying also what you're seeing now in the in the flexible concept that's being put out there by, by a number of uk companies is you are going to be producing more and more fully serviced buildings so fully equipped buildings, yeah which require a completely different kind of know-how and skills than delivering a building core and shell it also have different cost implication if you need to pay for the fit out of the tenant and yeah. the tenant move every three years it's different than i produce a building which is core and shell and the tenants stay in for 20 years and i don't need to care about it i also understand why it might be scary all of a sudden to realize that what matters is not the four walls that you're providing to the tenant but what happened within those four walls and that is yeah. completely outside of your control we're less concerned about that because we have control over that process and we we've been having that for years i mean i always thought that germany was kind of behind the curve because i mean coming from france where we also deliver or french people also deliver building like core and shell i always thought like why the hell is the german market going through all the spain into doing all the fit out for the tenant it wouldn't be easier that we just rent the asset and the tenant take care this is not how the market was structured, so I was really never able to implement that. But now, with a bit of uh, looking back, I believe Germany was actually ahead of the curve. And I was wrong in my thinking initially. So the market is going to go more and more toward a solution where landlords are going to provide fully fitted out assets, which will have implication in the way company need to be set up and will have cost implication as well, and an implication into understanding and organizing yourself to understand how tenant needs are evolving over time do you think that's being factored into the share prices of listed companies in the uk well uh, i think it's very hard to say what is factor and what is not factor in the share price of any listed company but i think at least within shareholder at least the one i speak to there is more and more views that concur to what i just said i mean the capex element and how much money you need to put in whether it's esg related or related to the way the tenant is working yeah um, i mean those things are coming very high on the agenda of investors and and i, I believe probably part of the discount you're seeing on NAV, on, on the share which are trading across Europe, actually, not only in the UK, reflect partly that concern. And uh, I, mean, I mean, let's talk about your own business in terms of the, the discount. You're trading at a pretty sizable discount to your NAV. Your NAV is uh, 4.6 and uh, share price is around two and a half, almost billion euros. Do you think, uh, have the markets been too extreme in, in how they're pricing down offices and how they're pricing warehousing with a huge premium, industrials trading with, with a huge premium still at the minute? Are things too expensive at one end and too cheap at the other? So we are actually trading at a 15% discount to NAV, which is on, on the upper end of the European offices. But in general, you're right, office property company are trading at a discount and industrial company are trading at a massive premium. I think that basically reflects the view of the market that the demand for logistic property is going to increase massively, whereby, given everything we've discussed before, yeah. there's uncertainty on the level of demand for office property. So logistic is demand is increasing yeah. and office property demand is a question mark so i think the the market's 
consistent in that approach. Whether or not, you know, the 70, 80% premium on NAV you're seeing on logistic property company across Europe is warranted, I, I wouldn't know. I mean, I'm, I wouldn't dare to think I'm smarter than the entire market. Uh, so I'm, <laughs> I'm sure the market knows better than I do. We're all smarter than the entire market, uh, let's be honest. <laughs> but uh, but I think there is, I think the logic here is, I mean, it's pretty self-evident is, you know, you, you assume like e-commerce is going to grow, there's going to be more need for logistics. You look at all the constraints on the supply chain right now. Yeah. You could argue that the constraint of the supply chain might show that the logistic infrastructure is not where it should be and how it should be. So probably logistic company need to rethink also the way they are set up in light of that. But again, uh, I think the, the market is probably pricing all that in. Mm. I hope so. And I mean, in terms of ESG, that's obviously uh, a big talking point this quarter. We've had a number of podcasts over recent weeks with Great Portland Estates, with Aviva, uh, with BlackRock, some pretty senior figures giving us some really interesting insights. And absolutely, do do go back and check out some of these previous podcasts that we've had. Olivier, from your perspective, having started your career almost in, in the sustainability world, what is Germany's response and how do you see that compared to what we're doing in Britain? I think the, the real estate industry in Germany has woken up to the ESG topic probably two years ago, two and a half years ago. Whereas France was very early. And I remember you know, when my, my years at the BPF, 2006, 2010, we'd always look at France and what, what they were doing in Paris. That was always the, France was always the bellwether, I thought, for sustainability. So we... As a company, we started publishing an ESG report back in 2010, and we were like clearly the first. Austria, com- yeah, yeah, we were clearly the first company in the German-speaking country to do that. And at the time, it was looked at more like as a nice thing to do, and yeah. then people kind of read it and then put it aside and and then move on. I think today's every single German company is publishing one. Uh, you can't do without it. So what? Well, no, nothing <laughs> necessarily have have changed. A lot of of the thing in those documents is, is pure marketing. Yeah. What I wanted to say is in 2010, when we were looking back at you know where, what was the role model, we we're more looking at Australia, which was ahead of the curve. And I know that in the UK, you've introduced the neighbor system, which is coming from Australia. So Australia has been kind of ahead of the curve. I think Europe- So has, neighbors is a, just for anyone's benefit. This is there's actually a, a podcast we did on this. Absolutely. That uh, we will share in the article around it, but it's, a, it's essentially a, a post-occupancy measurement tool that enables you to measure the performance of an asset on an ongoing basis. That's the, the neighbor system that Olivier was just referring to. So he's not talking about the, the, the Australian soap opera, which he does secretly watch in his spare time. He's told me off mic. So it, it is exactly this neighbor system I was speaking about. Uh, so Australia was really ahead of the curve at the time. I think Europe as a whole has made massive progress. And in Europe, in the listed world, the European Public Real Estate Association has been publishing indicators that listed companies need to show in terms of ESG. Mm. And now most of the listed companies are doing that. I think your point about so what is a very fair point. Does that actually change anything on the ground? I, I'm, I, don't, I mean, reporting never change anything. But it does help to get across a certain number of messages about why you're doing things and how you're doing things. So, I mean, the, the question that, that I think most people challenging this would ask is, what are you doing differently that's costing you money but helping the environment? Because that's the litmus test, right? Because anyone can say, oh, I'm doing this or doing that. But unless you're being forced to make a change that has an implication over here to benefit the environment, then, then arguably... It so, isn't worth the, the words that are printed in that report. So I would encourage you to look at a website, which is www.green.com 
dividend.com, which is basically a website we set up two and a half years ago to support a concept that we've put forward with our shareholder about the green dividend. And our argument is exactly what you said is we're arguing that, you know, if basically uh, helping the environment and making money were two things that would go hand in hand, we wouldn't have a problem to start with because like everybody would be piling into, into that. So the fact that we have a problem tend to show that there is a cost involved and there is some cost that somebody somewhere need to bear. You can see that essentially in real estate with mm. all the company asking for subsidies. I mean, why would you need subsidies if the thing makes a lot of sense, economically speaking? But so in terms of this green dividend, that's where a small portion of your payout goes to decarbonize different projects, which your argument would be, and doing this adds to value. Uh, absolutely. So we basically suggest to our shareholders to reduce the payout that they have, so in, in your term, to actually sacrifice returns. And we suggest to invest that money into projects that we would not do as a company if we would just look at financial returns, because they would not yield the return that we would expect. But they would yield positive impact, essentially, on climate change. And that's really the, the concept. The concept is, are we prepared to a certain extent, to bear part of those costs. And the way we size it, because obviously then there is no limit to what you can spend if you want to save the planet. So the way we size it is we have next to it, we have what we call our carbon accounts. And what our carbon accounts do is that they're going to calculate how much carbon we have been using in a given year and how much we would have needed to pay if there was a price for carbon. And so we argue and where that- Where do you set that price? Because this is something we were discussing with, with Great Portland Estates and they, they were setting it about £96. So we, we use the market price. So the so, price change year so on year. To the ETS. Yeah. and, and Which we, is we, about less than half of that. It, it is substantially lower than that. And we had a, an intense debate about how should we set it. But we felt that any price we would set outside of that would be arbitrary. And at least this one has some kind of like rooted in, in, a, in the marketplace. Whether that price is right or wrong, I don't know. Well, I mean, it's still arbitrary. It's just arbitrary that's backed by a big organization. Uh, yeah, but it, it's it's arbitrary backed by people who are buying it or selling it. So typically the ETS price of carbon have increased by more than 50% year on year. Mm. And I think that's an important message to get across. So when I speak to my shareholders, if they see that the price of carbon is I mean, if my cost of carbon is still the same this year than it was last year, then I don't need to worry about it because it's not changing. If they see it increasing by 20%, then they're going to start asking questions about it because it's changing and increasing rapidly. So yeah. I think it's important to show dynamic and not only statics number. No, that's a fair point. So what sorts of projects are you investing in? Because again, the other challenge that, that people have is that you've got all of these big companies creating loads of pollution and they're chucking a load of money into into offset projects, I would say probably three quarters of which probably have very little effect. And the last quarter probably have do have an effect, but over such a long period of payback that they're also pretty useless. So if you read everything about Altria on sustainability, you, you would notice one thing is we're not a net zero company. Yeah. There is a black zero at the end of our emission because we do buy offsets, but we don't pretend that those offsets are getting us anywhere clear to a point where yeah, we're not and I, I, I think, you know, uh, just to be clear, I don't have a problem with offsets. And I think most rational people believe that offsets are part of the solution. The problem that I have is, is you know, when I go and buy a flight to New York or somewhere and I'm told spend 30 quid, pay for some trees, and that's somehow better than all of the trash and and unrecycled plastic that you find on a British Airways flight. You know, and so I think my point is that, that 
companies have a responsibility to reduce waste and reduce usage as well as simply playing a tick box game with offsets i I actually do have a problem with offset so i'm i I wouldn't mind you having a problem with offset as well because i think offset is an easy answer to a complex solution and again uh, we've been writing about that in our sustainability report in the past you know if using i mean you can't privatize a forest and say you know whatever is coming out of that forest is basically offsetting my carbon emission this is not how it works so the net zero concept Mm. is is at at this and also they're discovering recently that a lot of forests actually are carbon positive as well a- Absolutely. So, but to your point, the, the project we're financing are, um, I mean, one of them is looking at, I mean, we're funding research of a project which is called Project Vesta in, in the US, which aim at checking whether or not you could take away carbon. So it's a carbon capture project, isn't it? Yeah, it's but but not carbon capture with a technology, so not with energy, but with with a, it's called weathering technique, which which basically work on kind of carbon capture that exists in nature and try to accelerate that process Amazing. one or another. And the reason why we decided to fund that project is, first of all, because assuming it works, which is a big assumption, it is potentially scalable. And also the research that they're doing is publicly available so it's open source it's not like funded for for a specific company or mm. startup and we think there is merit into funding for project which then can be if it if they work can be scaled and and would be available not in a private manner but in, in a public manner especially if we're spending yeah. our I mean, corporate do you, money do you think do, i mean is this something that epro or somebody could be looking at in terms of tackling climate change through some sort of european R&D fund that can harness spending from different companies and target it into something that's going to make a difference. Because the problem that many people have is that lots of companies have lots of little projects that aren't really going to make a huge amount of difference. There's no transparency over many of the offset schemes that people have, but actually having a large focus fund focusing on on R&D and innovation could actually make a big difference. I think there is a lot of merit into kind of consolidating those things. But at the end of the day, I think, and we, I just want to be clear about that, the only reason why we're having this conversation is because government are not doing their job. Because essentially what you're talking about, it shouldn't be to the private sector to start to find ideas about pulling resources together in order to fund for those things that should be, I mean, this is why we pay taxes in essence. Yeah. And and that should be the, the job of the government. So there is a massive lack of leadership here, both on the EU side and uh, and in, in local government into tackling that problem. And this is why we are having that conversation. I mean, one of the reasons why we came up with a green dividend concept is because we did realize that if we were to spend money on our own, we're not sure we're going to be spending it in the most efficient way. So especially if we spend it on our assets, we were not sure that, you know, a million euro we'd spend to decarbonize an asset could not be spent elsewhere and have a bigger impact from a climate perspective. So if you decide that financial return is not what you're looking for, then you need to apply the same discipline to your objective. If your objective is decarbonization, you want to make sure that the kind of ton of CO2 you actually take out of the atmosphere is the highest possible for the euro you put in. And that's actually not in real estate. It's elsewhere. So Well, exactly. And that's why there's a strong argument for companies backing early stage businesses that might be able to do something but the, the question is seismic. the question is then like how much money are you going to commit to back that up how do you define the pool of money you're going to back that up because again if i read the bylaw of my company it doesn't say save the planet it saves manage real estate 
So I believe there need to be conversation between shareholders and companies about like what exactly are we prepared to put in in order to tackle the, the climate change, if anything. And that conversation, I, I think, need to happen. It's not management that can decide on its own that, you know, we need to spend X million euro into doing such a thing. It needs to be a concerted uh, decision. It's only if there is collaboration. You can't have shareholders telling companies you need to do something and companies doing things without having that conversation. Otherwise, we, it's going to lead to massive inefficiency of capital allocation. Mm. And we believe, rightly or wrongly, that this dialogue is fundamental. The experience we had with the Green Dividend was from that perspective very enlightening and it's not so much about the amount we're investing i mean it's 1.2 million euro it's clearly not going to make a dent into the overall climate change problem although every drop helps it's more into the dialogue that we had with our shareholder and then in turn the dialogue they having with their own investors because the mere fact that we're asking a question which is pretty unusual in a general meeting, force them to do the same thing with their own investors. Mm. And so the dynamic about, you know, should we invest, should we accept lower returns that we create is basically trickling through the investment chain upward, not downward. And how genuine is the noise that big institutions are making? Every institution right now has got their own ESG strategy. They're making a big promotion about how sustainable they are. But in private, when they're asking you about the costs that you're having to generate doing, you know, things that are, that are good, what are they saying? Are they saying the same things? Is there a level of, of double speak? So when, when you argue that there are costs related to ESG, I mean, the usual answer is to say, what do you mean cost? I have my fiduciary duty. I need to maximize returns. So when you say, are you prepared to accept lower dividends? You know, they're going to say, what do you mean lower dividend? I have a fiduciary duty. I need to accept the higher dividend. I mean, I have an anecdote about one large fund manager with a very like wide ESG policy. You're not going to tell me the name, are you? No, I'm not going to say the name, but who called and said, Olivier, you know, we, we like your green dividend initiative. We just want to know whether our voting pattern is going to be made public because it would have an influence about how we vote. I actually don't know how they ended up voting, but the mere fact that they're asking the question, I, I find it's interesting. And then I also had investor who came back to us and said, look, we voted against what you're proposing, so we voted to get the money, but it did create a dynamic within the company where we started asking, like, how come we're voting against? And why are we, are we consistent with our ESG policy by doing that? Shouldn't we just challenge the statu quo here? I mean, for me, those feedback are much more interesting than what we're actually doing with the money because it does create some kind of dynamic. I think the, the biggest risk that we have is, and, and the, the biggest problem we have when it comes to sustainability finance is the belief that, I mean, all those investments are going to be profitable. There are going to be areas where a lot of investments are going to be profitable. I mean, you've invested in Tesla, you invested in solar panel company, you invested into everything related to renewable, you're probably going to be great. But then there are going to be a lot of other areas where you're not going to be making money. And, mm. and the question is more about where the money is going to come to decarbonize all those other areas. There's a, a very nice report by McKinsey who look at real estate and says that 80% of the investment needed to decarbonize the real estate industry are not financially viable. In terms of 80% of the buildings? 
80% of the money that need to go into those investments is not financially valuable. So you would not make those investments. But you need them to decarbonize. You need them to hit the 2050 uh, targets. But 80% of those investments are not financially viable. So the question is, basically, who's going to bear that cost? And we can ignore the cost. We can just pretend it doesn't exist. It's not going to make the problem disappear. Mm. In terms of the dynamic of the current market, who are the sorts of people you're doing deals with in the different cities? And what's changing about the sorts of clusters in, in different cities? So are you seeing that the tech cluster in Berlin, is that is that still growing? Is that still booming? How does that differ from some of your other markets in, in Frankfurt, in Stuttgart, in, in Hamburg and Dusseldorf? So we are... Give us a quick kind of... 30 yeah. second tour so we we basically do business with like every part of the economy we we have around 30 percent of our tenants which are public tenants we do have a number of young startup and tech industry uh, company within our buildings we do have finance so in in the different german cities you have local peculiarities so Frankfurt is more about finance. Dusseldorf is more about services. Stuttgart is more about automotive and, and IT. Uh, Hamburg is trade. It's, it's much more diversified, actually. Uh, a lot of advertising agency, creative agency, etc. But as a business, we really cater for, I mean, the need of each and every tenant. And one of the reasons why, why we do that, as we discussed before, is we do think about the fit out of the building with the tenant. So, you know, if an IT company comes to us or, or a startup company come to us and said, I want to have like something that look like a kindergarten as an office, we can do that. And then if we have like a venerable old German institution who said, I want to have something that fit a venerable old German institution, we could do that as well. And those two can be in the same building on two different floors and both need to live happily together. So it's a bit challenging to produce buildings that allow for that, but this is really, I think, where the strengths of the company are. So in, in short, we really cater for literally any kind of tenant within the economic sphere. We're not so much focusing on um, on a specific uh, tenant. We, we do have life science, we have startups, IT, um, mm. public tenant. And is that going to be a growing part of the market? Everyone, uh, Everyone's getting very excited about life sciences over here. Huge premium being paid for particular sites around Oxford, Cambridge and King's Cross. Is that something that Austria is going to be focusing on, investing into? Well, I, I read with a lot of attention the very good report that you guys put out on the life science. Thank you. Thanks. It's life sciences innovation that Blackstock produced uh, with Savills and Perkins and Will and lots of other people. Absolutely. And I think some of the issue you mentioned in there, uh, especially the fact that a lot of this real estate is currently sponsored by public entities, also true in Germany. So it is a part of the market we're, we're looking into. But on the other hand, it's a part which is heavily subsidized. And as a landlord, at least currently in Germany, it's hard to compete efficiently against other landlords which are more publicly driven, which are interested into getting the life science off the ground and, and therefore heavily subsidizing the rent. So we do have a couple of buildings which are into Life Science Park, and we are currently managing in that respect. And it's an area we are monitoring, but it's not an area where, where we think we're going to be growing massively in, in the next few years. So what do you think the next few years do look like, Olivier? What what would you like to achieve? How much longer do you think you're going to stay in this role? Are you, are you looking at uh, you looking at retiring? Are you looking at another job? Are you looking at going back into the world of DJing, perhaps? 
Um, well, I mean, if I listen to my kids, they would not want me to like DJ the music I DJ. I'm not sure I would fit with the current. Uh, well, music's a bit like, like property. It's quite cyclical, isn't it? Yeah, we could do like 80 revivals kind of parties, which which would would be nice as well. But um, but that's kind of that diversion. I'm I'm happy where I am. I, I don't plan to retire anytime soon. I'm, I still have a, a couple of years to go. I, I think the company, what we're doing essentially is we we are retrofitting as and our intention is to continue doing that and potentially accelerate the speed at which we're doing that, which again help us address uh, part of the ESG questions. Yeah, uh, Austria is currently like, a, as we said, like five billion euro, four point six billion euro uh, portfolio value. There is room for us to grow into the German market and, and potentially over the next ten years to kind of double once again the size of the company as we did in the first ten years of the life of the company. So there is still a room for us to be active in the German market, and I'm, I'm very hopeful that uh, you know we're going to be able to deliver on that yeah so if you had one piece of advice for some of our friends here in the uk what would that be what what piece of advice would you give the uk market from germany from a real estate perspective yeah you mean yeah, yeah. I, I don't think you can learn more i mean I'm, I'm i don't think basically we have things to teach our friend in the UK. The only thing I would say is moving from a model which is core and shell to a model where you're actually providing fitted out uh, have a massive implication on cost. And I, I would be a bit wary about that. Um, so look at what's happening in the hotel. I mean, that's the FFNE uh, structures and, and what costs that involved. Yeah, you get higher rent. But then at the end of the day, when you need to repay for the entire fit out, you also get slightly different economics. Mm. Fantastic to speak to you. Fantastic uh, insight. Great to to have you in for, for this week's Boss Class. Olivier Lamine from Austria. Thank you so much. Thanks for coming in. Lovely to meet you. Do keep listening to PropCast. Please subscribe by searching PropCast on Apple, on Spotify, on SoundCloud. Uh, you can obviously keep checking propertyweek.com for the latest news and if you've got any suggestions for future guests or future topics please do get in touch i've been andrew teacher from blackstock consulting thank you for listening and we'll see you soon take care